Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is good to see you. It's good to be with you this morning. Hope you had a great spring break. And we also want to welcome um, our church family at East Memphis online. Welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're joining us as well. Uh, I was just over there in the last service. Uh, thanks for putting up with our, uh, someone actually just waved to you from our congregation down here. So we hope you feel welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're joining in with us. Um, if you've got your Bible, open it up to uh, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we are going to continue in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And while you turn there, uh, let me just give you kind of an update of where we've been. Let me give you the context of what we are about to dive in the middle of. Um, it's always helpful before we jump into a passage for you to know what's going on, what's happened, uh, where have we gone before this. And uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been faithfully walking through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. And uh, boy, has it been painful, um, but glorious at the same time. And Jesus... Uh, spoke this sermon to believers. Um, he spoke this to, to people that had already forsaken all else, decided to follow him, uh, put their faith in him, and he's talking to believers. And uh, if you just give you a summary of the sermon, and as we get deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're ending chapter five today. There's a chapter six and a chapter seven. Uh, our summaries are gonna have to get shorter as we walk through this. But to give you kind of a summary of where we've been, Jesus starts the sermon in verses one through 12 on this is who my people are. This is who believers are. And he says that we're poor in spirit, that we're broken before God, that we realize that spiritually we bring nothing to the table, right? We offer nothing when it comes to us attaining salvation. The only thing we do is we bring our sin to the table, right? We offer, we're spiritually bankrupt. He says we're poor in spirit, uh, that we mourn over our sin, right? But the good news of the gospel is that we'll be comforted and then we, we hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not our own. We hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. And the good news of the gospel is that we've been freely given that in Christ. And because of that, we're meek, right? We're humble. We don't walk around like we've earned this thing, um, expecting other people to earn this thing. But we know that we've done nothing to save ourselves. And it is because someone has done for us what we could not do for ourselves that we've been saved. So we're meek. Um, we're peacemakers, right? We hunger and thirst and we long for more righteousness. And one of the things we've been talking about um, lately is this is not just how you felt the day or the night or that emotional moment at camp when you were saved. Um, this is how believers are called to remain. That you and I, every day, that we stay poor in spirit. That as John 15 says, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That we walk around and realize that the only good in us, the only light in us is the light of Christ in us. So like branches abide in the vine, as John 15 says, that we abide in Christ daily, realizing that we're spiritually bankrupt, we're poor in spirit, that we continue to mourn over our sin, that just because it's paid for on the cross doesn't mean we get complacent with it and we get comfortable with it, but we mourn over it, we go to war with it, uh, we hunger and thirst for more of God's righteousness in our hearts, in our homes, in our families, in this church, in our community, that this is how we stay. It wasn't just how we felt the, the moment we got saved, but this is how believers remain. It's, it's like um, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, I believe. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That we stay this way. And then, this is who my believers, or this is who my followers are in verses one through 12. And then in chapter five, verses 13 through 16, Jesus gets into, this is what my believers, this is what my people do. This is the way of the kingdom. This is what Jesus' followers do that we um, shine, we're, we're lights of the world, and we um, do good deeds and that they glorify our Father in heaven, that we, we shine like lights in the world, um, we live like the salt of the earth, that God's means to create more hunger and more thirst for him is the gospel that we proclaim and the message that we live, 
the gospel that we share with our brothers and sisters and our neighbors and our family members, the way we love and serve and sacrifice for them is a testament that when they see those things in us, they'll glorify God, it'll direct their gaze up to him and what he's done for them, that the means by which God is gonna create more hunger and thirst for him in the world is through the church, through his people, sharing the gospel and living out the gospel in our lives. And then he addresses the question that everyone was wondering, is this new way, is this kingdom, is this Jesus movement, is this apart from the Old Testament? Do we unhitch from the Old Testament? Do we throw it out? Do we abolish it? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not abolishing it. In fact, I came to fulfill it. I'm, I came to give you the right interpretation of the law. And the beauty about this sermon is it's the word of God himself, like in flesh, interpreting for us the word of God. So we need to see it and see it for what it is. Jesus is going to give us what the law was intended to do. He's gonna give us the accurate interpretation of the law because the Pharisees and the scribes had taken the law and they had reduced it down to outward righteousness, right? Exterior righteousness, that I'm obeying the law if I don't murder somebody. And Jesus says, no, 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 the way of the kingdom, the, the original intent of the law was not just that we don't murder each other. The beauty of heaven that we look forward to is not just that people aren't gonna kill each other, right? It's that there's no envy, there's no anger, there's no hatred, there's no malice. And Jesus says, you don't have to wait for that then, you live like that now. This is how you live as part of the kingdom. The Pharisees and scribes had reduced it down to just external you know, affairs, cheating externally. And Jesus says, what good is that? if you're emotionally and spiritually cheating on a regular basis. He's not just after the external adultery, he's after the internal lust in our hearts. This is the way of the kingdom, this should not be so. And then he moves into divorce, he moves into keeping our word and oaths that um, believers would be people of integrity where we don't have to swear on all these other things that if we give people our yes, it means yes. If we give people our no, it means no. And then Jesus eventually says at the end of this kind of section, he says, you need a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. They've reduced the law down to this outward, external law keeping, and you need a greater righteousness. You need an inward righteousness. That, that Jesus came not just to fix our behavior, he came to renovate our hearts. And you need a inner, a inner heart righteousness. This is the rebuke that he gave the Pharisees over and over again. He says, you honor me with your lips. You've got all the externals, but what? Your hearts are far from me. He called them whitewashed tombs. <laughs> you look great, nice and clean on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And this was the problem. And Jesus says, we need a righteousness that is beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he proceeds to take these six kind of practices and this list, these six things, it's not an exhaustive list. He's not like summarizing the entire Old Testament, but he's given, or he's giving us Six kind of common teachings that um, the scribes and the Pharisees were greatly misinterpreting from the law. And they had reduced it down to the externals. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to take you back to the heart. I'm going to give you the original tent of the law. I'm going to show you what inward heart level righteousness looks like according to the Old Testament law. Because not a dot, not an iota of it will fade until heaven and earth pass away. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So he takes these things, and we've talked about anger and murder. We've talked about lust and adultery, divorce, oaths, all those kind of things. And we're gonna look at our last two today. So if you've got your Bible, hopefully by now you're in Matthew chapter five. Uh, if you'll stand here in Carryville and there at East Memphis, uh, we don't do this to be high church or to be awkward or to be weird. Uh, we do this to kind of 
give our own physical bodies a physical reminder that this is a holy book, that this is as if God was saying it to us himself, that the Holy Spirit wrote this word, it's, um, it inspired this word, this word is God-breathed according to 2 Timothy 3, and the same Holy Spirit that wrote this is in us, helping us rightly interpret it. So let's read this, and then I'll pray as we begin. Uh, Matthew 5, 38 through 48, it says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You can have a seat and let's pray together. Lord, God, we invite you to move. Um, as I said, your word is in front of us and your spirit is inside of us. And God, that is a recipe for hearts to change. Um, God, my heart is that the gospel this morning would take enemies and make them friends. God, that would move us to have a changed heart and to love those around us. And God, I can't produce that in anybody, um, but I know that you can. So be with us as we um, look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, a few days ago, I was reading an article about something that happened a few weeks ago in Texas, and I don't say this to slight Texas or anything like that. If you're from Texas, uh, this could have just probably already happened in Memphis, and I just didn't read the article about it. But um, there was this article that was talked about. It was very interesting. It was um, this whole situation blew up, but it started because downtown, major city in Texas, uh, this one person decided to cut off another person in traffic. And instead of letting it go, instead of, you know, Lord be with them, whatever, Lord bless them, uh, what happened was that person decided to respond and responded by following and cursing, which led to more cursing and screaming, which led to a high-speed chase on the interstate, which led to being cut off and pulled over into a neighborhood, which led to physical altercations and choking and um, theft and robbery and eventually a windshield being smashed and uh, no police involved, like just two pedestrians going about their day. Uh, and what was interesting about the article, what was so funny about it was, and this is so true for all of us, the person, one of the people involved in this incident at the end of the article said, you know, if I would have known that me responding to being cut off in traffic would have led to all of this, I just wouldn't have responded. I wouldn't have done it. Like, had I known that this would happen, I wouldn't have responded with more evil, with more slander, with more cursing, with all those kind of things. And I tell you that story because all of us have a similar situation in our own lives, with our own families, with our own siblings, with your in-laws, right? Had I known that me responding in this way, that me saying things in that tone, that me reciprocating the damage, whatever it is, would have led to all of these things, boy, would I not have said something. 
And I tell you that because Jesus is going to move into this section on the Sermon on the Mount where he's going to tell us and instruct us how we are respond, how believers, how people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus are going to respond or supposed to respond, called to respond when someone does evil against us. How we respond to our enemies. And some of you are like, all right, Parker, enemies? Like, really? I'm a Christian, right? You know, I love God. God is love. I love everybody. Um, Cool, right? It's easy to love everybody generally, isn't it? It is. We all, yeah, I love everybody. Yeah, I don't have any enemies. I just have people in my life that I can't stand to be around and that I don't like, and I secretly hope that they fail in life, but I don't have any enemies, right? Uh, this is kind of how we are. This is, this is all of us. There's just something in us that loves when someone who's hurt us or offended us gets what they've got coming. We love it. We sing songs about it. We write movies about it. Taylor Swift, you know, write another song about bad blood. We'll all buy it, won't we? We just love this idea that when someone has offended us, that they get what they've got coming. We love it. And it's so true. It's part of who we are. Uh, Charles Schultz, uh, we don't have to work at this or learn this, do we? Charles Schultz, he was the uh, creator of the the comics in the the newspapers with Charlie Brown and Lucy and Snoopy and all those folks. Um, He, uh, in one of the comics, Lucy says, I love the world, I just hate people. And some of you might be in here this morning and you'd be like, Parker, that is, there is not a more accurate phrase than how I feel about life right now. Um, we love to see when people offend us or when people hurt us, get what they've got coming. We do. We don't have to teach it. You don't have to learn it. There's just something in us that's bent that way. And it tastes great when we see it. And we live in a broken world. We have broken relationships. And the word enemy there in the Greek, Jesus actually is just referring to someone that is trying to do harm to you. Someone who is opposing you, resisting you, wishing to inflict harm on you. Which means you and I, we can go from friends to enemies pretty quickly, can't we? You see siblings, which I'll mention in a minute, go from friends to enemies really quickly, don't you? So it is crucial that we learn how we are called to respond to people that hurt us or offend us and our enemies. Uh, Let's begin, shall we? If you look at verse 38, it says this, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this phrase, you've heard that it was said, uh, Will talked about this last week, but I wanna repeat this. Jesus is critiquing. He doesn't say you've heard it was written or you've seen that it was written. He's critiquing the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis teaching. You could essentially read that as you've heard that it was taught. This is how it's been interpreted and I'm gonna give you the right interpretation of the law. So he gives the law. You've heard that it was said or it was taught an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this is in the law. In fact, this is in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. The issue is, and the problem is, is that this kind of way of doing things, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was civic law for the nation of Israel. It was not given on the personal level for you to go seek an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It was given to the courts and to the judges in Israel to administer equal and just and right punishment on behalf of the people, that they would mediate and make sure that justice is served. God did not give this to individuals. And it doesn't take us long to think about why he did not do this, right? If somebody hits you in the eye, how do you respond? Do you stop and go, or if they knock out your tooth, okay, which tooth was that? Uh, Let me, was that a molar? Okay, sir, if you'll please open your mouth and turn your head to the side, you have removed a molar, so I'm going to remove one of your molars. 
Is that how we respond in the moment? No, not even close, right? If somebody goes for my eye, I'm going for their mouth and their nose and their neck, right? And then they're looking around for their buddies or something sharp, right? And then they've got their family, I've got my family, and then you've got the Hatfields and the McCoys, you've got the Corleones and the Barzinis, right? Like, this is why God did not give it to individuals. In fact, John Piper actually says, Uh, This, he says, God gives by concession a legal regulation as a dam against the river of violence which flows from a man's evil heart. That God gave this provision in the Old Testament as a wall to stop the evil that would flow out of our heart. There's a reason Proverbs talks about how the letting out of anger is like um, breaking a dam and letting the water flow out. Like once you start, like you can't stop it. Once Once it starts flowing, like there's no containing it. That's why Paul in Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin that this was given to um, the, the lawyers and the judges and the courts in Israel. Um, my brother and I, uh, we're very close in age, my older brother and I, and we grew up you know, playing basketball against each other, fighting with each other, wrestling with each other. And uh, it was playful until I'm grabbing him or he's grabbing me. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything's great. We're smiling, we're laughing, giggling. And then somebody's grip like slips and an elbow kind of goes across your face. And then talk about being enemies turning into friends, right? In a moment. Or we're, you know, wrestling up in our, we shared a room growing up and those kind of things. And, you know, he pushes me too hard. I push him too hard. And somebody falls off the bed and you hear the thud. My parents are downstairs, just hear the thump. And then they hear my steps just running from him for my life. And I run down the stairs to the safety of my parents. And never once did my brother come down there and wish for righteous judgment on me. Never. Hey, this is what he did to me. Now, if you'll let me, you know, grab him and elbow him, we'll be good. No, he was like, mom, dad, just give me 20 seconds with him. And that's all I need, right? It was like, I'm about to be an only child kind of thing, right? Because this is what happens when you and I are offended. We don't think this way. We don't operate this way. We are not righteous. We are not just. And God gave this provision to the courts, to the judges in Israel um, to prevent things like this, to prevent physical revenge, Vengeance, all those things. Think about it. When somebody says something to your wife, men in the room, your wife comes home and she says, yeah, there was this lady, there's this girl, you know, at this store, at women's Bible study, whatever, right? She said something about me. How do you counsel her? You say, well, is that mildly offensive? Was it moderately offensive? Now let's get creative. Let's think of something mildly offensive about her. And then we'll just send that out there into the, the internet. No, we don't do any of that. Parents, When somebody offends or says something about or does something to one of your children, do you just stop and go, hmm, let's weigh this and see, okay, where did they go? And then let's think of something. No, you turn into Bruce Wayne, right? I'm vengeance. Like you just go and do something. This is how we operate. And the problem that we're seeing right here is that the Pharisees and the scribes, they had taken this provision that God had given Israel to prevent revenge and violence and vendetta, and they were using it to accomplish their own revenge and retaliation and violence. They were taking a provision that was meant to protect and to guard against more hatred on top of hatred, and they were just using it to justify their own prejudice, their own hatred, their own violence. It's very similar to, we talked about this a few weeks ago, 
when we were looking at um, the divorce passage in a few verses earlier in Matthew. In Matthew 19, later, um, it's kind of the bigger discourse on divorce. Um, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees. They come to Jesus. And if you remember, kind of in the Old Testament days, women could not divorce men at all. They just couldn't. Um, and men were divorcing women. And because of this, if you think about the household in the early biblical days, men had the jobs, they had the trade, they made the money, and wives kept the house. And that's kind of not how we operate anymore. And we love that. We celebrate that, that women have careers and all those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But that wasn't how it was in the Old Testament times. So if a man decided to just leave his wife, she had no means of income, no way to protect the children, no way to provide. And the only thing she did wrong was take her husband at his word. And God, knowing that, gave a provision in Deuteronomy 24 that if a man was going to leave his wife, and God says for indecency, for adultery, that he would write her a certificate of divorce. And that was the provision that was meant to protect women and children, to protect the family, to uphold the sanctity of marriage. And what were the scribes and the Pharisees doing? They were using this provision that was meant to protect the family. And they're going, ah, see, God's given us a way out. And they redefined this indecency to, if my wife burned dinner, here's your certificate, right? If you got older and there's younger people around, here's your certificate. I'll trade it in for a new model. And they, they completely took this provision in the law that was used to protect women and children and uphold marriage, and they were using it to harm women and children and to drag marriage through the mud. And Jesus says, Moses gave you that provision because your hearts were hard. And Jesus goes back to Genesis and the sanctity of marriage. The two become one, all of those kind of things in that passage. Same thing the scribes and the Pharisees are doing right here taking the provision of the law that was given to the courts and given to the judges in Israel and they were using it for personal revenge to justify their own biases and prejudices and hatred and revenge and evil. That's what was going on. And honestly, this is how our world works today. Retaliation, right? We repay injuries for injuries. We repay favors for favors. This is how we live our lives. We retaliate. Revenge on the one hand, recompense on the other, but this is how we live. And Jesus says, there's a different way. There's a kingdom way. There's a better way. And he says this in verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Don't resist the one who is evil. Now, I, let me give you some disclaimers. Some of them might be obvious, but I just wanna air them all out so that we're all on the same page. When Jesus says right here, do not resist the one who is evil, he's not talking and, and preaching that you and I are not to resist the devil. Right? We know Satan is the evil one. He's not saying here, don't resist Satan. Peter and Paul and James, each in one of their epistles, all say, resist the devil. All right? That is something you, are, you and I should do actively. We should be doing that. So he's not arguing for that. And that one's probably obvious, but I just want to air that out and make sure that everybody's clear on that. He's also not advocating here that you and I are supposed to stay in abusive relationships. He's about to talk about turning the other cheek when someone strikes you, and I'll share what that means and those kind of things. But he's not advocating that you and I, if someone is actively striking you, Jesus is not preaching to you, don't resist, stay in it. He's not saying that at all. And I'll explain what he is doing here, but I just want you to know, if you're in a relationship where that's actively happening, you need to get out. Don't allow someone to use this text to manipulate you into staying in, um, because it's not what Jesus is advocating for. And then also, Jesus is not preaching against self-defense. Um, there's provisions in Exodus 22, you can read them. I believe it's verse two and three, where God allows for self-defense. We, we can't take these exceptions and make them the rule. 
Jesus is talking in the context of everyday personal envy and malice and hatred and slander and gossip and evil done towards you. He's not talking about all of these outliers on the fringes. He's talking about when somebody gossips about you, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, when somebody slanders you. And those are just inside the church, right? He's also talking about all the promises that God in his word gives us that's gonna come to believers from outside the church, that we will be persecuted and reviled and suffer and all of those kind of things. This is how you respond as someone who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. So, but I also want you to see this. Jesus doesn't hesitate to call it evil. So if you've been hurt by someone that you would call an enemy, and I don't know who your enemy is this morning, it could be someone on your street, it could be someone online, it could be someone that shares the same last name as you, a brother or sister, your in-laws, it could be the person that sleeps in the bed next to you at night. I don't know. But I want you to see that Jesus doesn't say, pretend that what they did isn't evil. He calls it evil. And you don't have to call it anything less than that. But then he gives us a way to respond. And I want you to see that. And how he does it is he uses these four different scenarios, these four different illustrations, and we'll walk through each one of them. But he's gonna use hyperbole a lot in these four illustrations. And if you haven't been to grammar in a while, class, um, hyperbole means excessive language to communicate a point. And we know Jesus is using hyperbole because he's already used it multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? He didn't literally mean cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. He was using excessive language to communicate a point. And he's gonna do that in some of these. And I want to point it out to you so you can see it. Um, He says this in verse 39, the second half of verse 39, he says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now what's going on here? Statistically, 85 to 90% of people in the US, at least, are right-handed. So what Jesus is talking about here is this, if I, as a right-handed man, were to slap you on your right cheek, it would have to be one of those classic backhanded things. He's not talking about someone beating you to a pulp. This is actually a form, especially in the first century, of public humiliation and shame and insult In our day, it's if someone gossips against you, if someone calls you out in front of your friends, if someone publicly humiliates you, this is what Jesus is getting at. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, if someone humiliates you, embarrasses you, attacks you, goes off on you online, you don't respond with more evil. You don't take this wrong interpretation of the law and seek vengeance on them. That as believers who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, we don't respond to gossip with more gossip. We don't respond uh, to deceit with more deceit or slander with more slander. That we refrain from doing that and thereby we open ourselves up to take another blow. Thereby we turn the other cheek. That if, if they're going to humiliate me, I'm not responding with more humiliation. That I'm refraining from doing that. And in all of these, I just want to point this out. Jesus isn't depicting someone who's weak Um, who's just supposed to just take a beating. In fact, he's depicting the opposite. Someone who's strong, who's um, strong enough actually to not respond with more hate and more violence and more vengeance. So he's not saying if you're weak and someone's getting after you that you're supposed to stay in that. I I don't want you to hear that. He's actually depicting that as believers, and I'll show you in just a minute, 
that we would respond with strength in those moments. When somebody humiliates us, that we would have the strength not to humiliate back. When somebody embarrasses you in front of all your friends, in front of your group, in front of your family, that you don't seek to, to embarrass them back. When you're around people and somebody who's just having a rough time says something about you to drop you down a peg so that they can feel better about themselves, that you don't play that game with them, that you refrain and thereby you turn the other cheek and open yourself up to more humiliation, more public shame, all of those kind of things. And then he says this, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, this one is interesting. Um, he's talking about if someone comes after you via the court system and they're after your tunic, they're trying to get some of your belongings. The cloak in the Old Testament is interesting. Um, if you wanna look at it, Exodus 22, 26, Deuteronomy 24, 13, there's these provisions in the Old Testament that have to do with cloaks. For some reason, God in his infinite wisdom um, had these provisions in the Old Testament where if you were um, coming after me, if, you, if I made a pledge with you and I took your cloak, um, if you were giving me payment for a damage and you gave me your cloak, I had to give it back to you before the sun went down so that you could not go to sleep cold and then you would give it back to me the next day. Cloaks like had this immunity. If you've ever seen Survivor, cloaks were essentially off limits. And what Jesus is saying here is that our heart's attitude when someone is doing evil to us or reviling us or slandering us or gossiping against us, when they're coming after our stuff, then when someone's coming after my belongings, I don't fight tooth and nail and try to take their belongings. That our heart's attitude as people who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus is that we're willing to part with valuable things. That's the attitude here. That if somebody's coming after stuff, I don't go to war with them. If they're coming after me via the courts, I don't engage with, oh, you're trying to get my stuff? I'm gonna walk away with your house and your car and all your, we don't do that as a part of the kingdom. We don't respond with more evil. We don't compound evil on evil that's been done to us. He says it again um, in verse 42, but let's look at verse 41 first. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now this was a, actually a Roman law in Jesus's day if you remember kind of how Israel was set up when Jesus was born, uh, Rome had authority over Israel. Rome was the world power and Israel had to submit to Rome. Um, this is why when the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to crucify Jesus, they had to go and get Roman permission from a Roman governor. Rome allowed the scribes and the Pharisees to govern over you know, is, Israel's um, spiritual matters and those kind of things, but Rome had the authority. And there was this Roman law that if a soldier wanted to, he could ask a Jewish person to grab his armor, to grab his belongings and carry them a Roman mile, essentially as long as he wanted them to. And Jesus says, in that moment, when someone lawfully comes and takes advantage of you, makes you carry your stuff, makes you work for them, makes you do these things, that you don't respond with fighting, you don't respond with more evil, that you respond by being helpful. And it's like, how in the world do we do these things, right? I'm good to just not respond. But Jesus is like, be helpful in that situation. Be willing to go with them too. He says in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. And this was all throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15, seven through 11 is this beautiful passage about how God says, you are supposed to be generous. Israel, my people, I've chosen and redeemed you. You're to be generous to the people. Why? Because I'm your God. I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna protect you. I already have and always will. So be a generous people. You're the means by which I'm gonna bless the world. It's a beautiful passage if you wanna mark it down and read it. But how in the world do we do this? 
How in the world, when we are attacked, when we're offended, when someone wrongs us, do we refrain from responding with more attack and more evil and more gossip and more wrong? How do we open ourselves to be generous in those situations? I think the writer of Hebrews gets at this. He gives us a real life example of Israel obeying this text. Um, He says this in Hebrews 10. I want you to see it, uh, verse 32 through 34. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So these believers, after they were enlightened, after they believed in Christ, they were exposed to public reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How do I do that? The only way I'll do that is if I know that I have a much greater possession and an abiding possession. So what Jesus is saying, the way of the kingdom is we don't fight people tooth and nail for belongings. There's not a thing in this world that's worth doing evil to someone for. Why? Because we have a better possession. We have an eternal possession. We have an abiding possession, which is Christ. So when people come after our possessions, we don't respond by going after theirs. We don't respond with adding evil to more evil. That we are willing to part with things that are valuable to us. Why? Because we have something greater that can't be taken away. Jesus is so great. The gospel is so great. It's so much greater than anything life could ever give you and anything that death could ever take. And when you realize that, we can respond in this way. Here's where it gets crazy. As if that was hard enough, right? Boy, would I love to pray and say amen and send us off. Jesus takes it a step further. It's not that we just refrain from adding violence to violence and evil to evil. Jesus is about to show us that the way of the kingdom, he'll even say the way of the Father and the way of himself is love when faced with evil. Love in response to slander. Love in response to hatred and violence. This is what he's going to get at. He's going to show us that the original intent of the law was love. You look at verse 43, he says this, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I want to take these two parts, we're going to split them up, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, we're going to talk about them one at a time. Um, Notice when Jesus says, here's the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall love your neighbor. Notice that the scribes and the Pharisees conveniently left off the phrase, as yourself, Right? Somewhere in the wash, that got left out. And I promise you, it wasn't an accident. They conveniently, like, okay, I love everybody generally. Yeah, I'm a scribe. I'm a Pharisee. I know the law. I'm obeying the law. I'm righteous. Of course I love everybody. Right? But love them as much as I love myself? Come on. Right? No way. Think about it. We're gracious to ourselves. We're kind to ourselves. We're patient with ourselves. We're forgiving to ourselves. We'll give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but do that with other people? No, right? And here's the reality. There's so much more Pharisee in me than I ever want to admit. And I think if you were honest, there's way more Pharisee in you than you would ever want to admit. That we are all preachers, 
and proponents of grace when we've offended somebody, aren't we? Boy, do we love grace when we're in the wrong. When we accidentally said that thing, when we didn't honor our word, when we didn't do what we were supposed to do, boy, do we love to preach grace. We are all proponents of grace until we're the one that's offended, aren't we? And if we think about it, we're very pharisaical in our thinking. We want grace for me and punishment for you, right? When I'm wronged, grace for me, evil for you. Kindness to me, judgment for you, right? We are all way more pharisaical than we think. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus is gonna take this next phrase. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. And Jesus, they completely missed as yourself. But then they've added this phrase and hate your enemy. And I want you to just to, to know this, that this is not anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus commands us to hate our enemies. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees, they took this provision in the law that talked about loving your neighbor and not seeking vengeance on your neighbor. And they go, okay, if God's commanding us to love our neighbor and not seek vengeance on them, then by implication, he means that we're to hate our enemies and seek vengeance for them. And let me just say this, good hermeneutical, good Bible interpretation uh, principle for wisdom, don't develop a theology on something that you think the Bible implies. Because this is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees had done. Let me listen to this um, from Leviticus 19. Um, this is one of the provisions in the law. It says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's the, the as yourself that went missing, right? But in Leviticus, the, the law says, don't seek vengeance on your neighbor. You're gonna love your neighbor as yourself. Don't hate your neighbor. And the scribes and the Pharisees said, okay, if that's how we're supposed to treat our neighbor, then by implication, we're supposed to hate our enemies. God has allowed us to hate our enemies and seek vengeance on our enemies. And this is what they were teaching in Jesus's day. And Jesus is saying, you've missed the whole point of the law. That's a very external, outward, sinful way to look at this passage. And Jesus says, I'm gonna take you back to the heart. And there's so many provisions in the Old Testament. Let me just read you a few of them. Um, that how we are supposed, the problem is, and we'll see this later in Luke chapter 10, they were using these provisions, they were using these things in the law that were meant to help people, to harm people, to confirm their own biases, their own prejudices. They were using Old Testament scripture to justify hating people. Jesus says, you've missed it. But look at how, just listen to how God commands us um, to treat, how he commanded Israel to treat their, their enemies, their, the foreigners among them. Leviticus 19, it says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. Treat the stranger as if he's one of you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus 23, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, Israel actually had enemies. There were rivaling nations and warring nations. And God says, if you find one of your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it alone, but you shall rescue it with him. By and large, when you look at the Old Testament, there weren't many differences between how God's people were supposed to love their own and to love their enemy. But the scribes and the Pharisees had conveniently left those out and they were using, twisting a scripture to justify loving the people they like and hating the people they don't. And boy, do we love to do the same. There's way more Pharisee in us than we want to realize. 
and talk about neighbor, you see all of this kind of come to a head um, in Luke chapter 10, chapter of the Good Samaritan. You've got this expert in the law who comes to Jesus and he's trying to test him, right? And he says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a flawed question in itself. As soon as you start asking, what do you have to do? How can you and your own works earn eternal life? Like it shows you how prideful this man was. And he says, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And the guy didn't have a theology problem, right? He uses Leviticus and Deuteronomy to, to show what does God require. If you had to defend your faith, East Memphis, if you had to defend your faith and you could only use Leviticus and Deuteronomy, how would you do, <laughs> right? Like this was a smart guy. It wasn't a theology problem, it was a heart problem. And he, the guy says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds with, yeah, do that and you'll live. Like love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength perfectly all the time and love people as much as you love yourself all the time. And the guy still thought he could do it. And it says in Luke 10, desiring to justify himself, he says, well, who's my neighbor, right? I'm about to show Jesus that I'm actually doing this. And how does Jesus answer the question, who's my neighbor? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan, telling this man that your neighbor is someone that you've called your enemy, according to the world. He picks a Samaritan, the arch enemies of Israel. He says, that's your neighbor. And in fact, he shows the Jew is in trouble and the Samaritan is the one who helps him. Jesus is saying, your neighbor is anyone who is made in the image of God, who you have the opportunity to love and to serve and to help and to have compassion on. Anybody made in his image. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees got wrong and they were using God's law to justify hatred and violence and revenge. And they missed it entirely. Jesus wasn't teaching a double standard of morality. Or Yahweh wasn't teaching a double standard of morality where you love this group of people and you hate this group of people. They just missed the whole intent of the law. And Jesus is getting us back. And look at what he says in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus takes it a step further from not just retaliating to our enemies, from refraining to do that. He says, no, no, no. I say to respond with love. Have compassion on the evildoer. When you and I, when we're wronged, instead of satisfying our own desires, that we think about, okay, what's the highest good for this person? It takes a ton of strength to do that. You can't do that in your own strength, if we're being honest. You just can't. You can't do it. That we would show this kind of selfless love. Not that we would hate. Not that we would respond with hate. There's just something about hate that's insidious, that grows in us, that festers in us. Booker T. Washington in his autobiography, Up From Slavery, he actually says this about hate, and I love it. He says, I will permit no man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. See that? That there's something about hatred in us that degrades our soul, that is insidious, that's like mold that just festers in us. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr., um, in his sermon on this very passage, says this. I want to read it to you. He says this. He says, hate multiplies hate. It is just as injurious to the hater as it is to the hated. Hate hurts us just as much as the people that we hate. Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away its vital unity. Listen to this sentence. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. 
By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. And this is what our Lord has called us to do, to not respond to evil done towards us with hatred, with more evil, with more violence, with revenge, but that we would respond with love. We're not out for vengeance. In fact, Old Testament and New Testament, God says, vengeance is mine. Every sin will get punished. And it is God's prerogative to do that. Our job is to love. This is what he requires of us. This is what he commands of us. And then he shows us, here's a way that you can love them by praying for them. Love your enemies and pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And it's not just a way to show love for your enemies. This is also one of God's primary means to create love in you for your enemies. If you have just a spark, just a tiny bit of love enough for someone to pray for them, God will use that to create more love for them in you. It is hard to hate someone that you are regularly praying for. It's nearly impossible to hate someone that you pray for on a regular and daily basis. It's just not, it's it's God's means to create love in them for us. Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side and plead for him to God. That the more we pray for our enemies, the more we'll love. And the more we love, the more we'll pray. And for some of you, you don't need to hear anything else. Maybe that's just where you need to start. With whoever's wronged you, whoever you've wronged, whoever you've hurt, whoever's hurt you, maybe this morning you just need a spark enough of love. And it won't come from you. It'll come from the gospel. To just begin to pray for that person. And then pray for them more. And the more you pray, the more you love. And the more you love, the more you'll pray. But maybe that's where you need to start this morning. But look at what Jesus says next. After he says, love your enemies and pray for them, he says this, and I want you all to see this. Look at verse 45, um, because this could trip you up and I don't want you to get tripped. He says this, so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. So that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. This is not Jesus saying that you and I are called to love our enemies and then we'll become children of God. That would be works-based. He's not saying you and I have to do this and then God will, okay, you finally earned it, right? Left to our own devices, we can't even do this well, so we would be without hope, but he is not arguing for a works-based salvation. Do these things and then you will become sons of your father who's in heaven. How do I know that? Because multiple other times in this very sermon, Jesus has already called God our father in heaven. Remember, he's preaching this to believers. Look at Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say, let your light shine, and then if your works are good enough, God will become your Father in heaven. It's not what he says. He says, let your light shine, and they'll see your good works. People will see your good works, and they'll know that you have a Father in heaven, and they'll glorify him. It'll direct their gaze up to him. He says this in Matthew 7. I believe it's verse 11, as I find my place again. Um, He says, um, 7-11, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This verse is just full of gospel. Look at it. Jesus calls us evil and says God's our Father in heaven in the very same verse. How in the world is that possible? 
only through the gospel, only through the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus is saying that you and I, who are evil, we can call God in heaven, holy, blameless, majestic in all his ways, us who are sinful and wicked and broken, enemies of God, we can call him our father. And Jesus calls us evil, and he says God's our father through the gospel. But he's he's not saying that we have to do these things so that God will become our father. He's essentially saying so that you and I will show that God is our father so that we'll live as if God is our father, so that we'll reflect that God is our father. Jesus is calling us to love and to to extend love, to receive love that's not like the world lives. We're called to not live like men, but to love like God. He's not calling us to love like men. He's calling us to love like he's loved. And then he shows us how God has done this. The rest of verse 45, for he makes the sun rise on on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust that God in his infinite mercy and goodness and kindness allowed the sun to rise this morning in Carrierville and East Memphis and wherever you're watching from. He allowed the sun to rise on those who love him, those who are his children through Christ and those who dedicate their lives to hate him and to move people away from him and to deceive people into not following him dedicating their lives to slander him, that God is so kind and so generous that um, even people that aren't even willing to recognize who he is are in him. They're living and moving and having their being, that he is holding their world together. He's putting breath in their lungs, that God is loving his children. And right now he is loving his enemies and loving them by giving them the opportunity to respond to the gospel. God loves the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. And Jesus is pointing us to that love and saying, this is how we are to love as his children. Not to become his children, but because we are his children. We don't love our enemies so that God will save us. We do it because he already has. Because we were his enemies. This is how we're supposed to do it. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And here's what I love about this. This hurt this week, studying this. Jesus is essentially saying, you're loving like the world. This this false interpretation of the Old Testament law, this is how the unbelieving world loves. They love those who love them. Unbelieving tax collectors and Gentiles, these dogs that the Jews called them. They love people who love them. And in reality, if you think about it, if I only love people who take care of me, if I only look out for people who look out for me, it's really just a love for myself, isn't it? If you only love those who love you and only look out for those who look out for you, it's really just because you love you. And I'm just gonna look out for and love those who are gonna look out for me and take care of me. And Jesus is saying, this is how the world loves. This is how the unbelieving world loves. What more are you doing than them? That's just human. That's not divine at all. Then he points us to a greater love. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now this verse should be deflating. Um, If you're a Grizzlies fan, this is where Pete Pranica would say, hammer, nail, coffin, this baby is over. Because I can't do this. And that's the point. We don't have this love in us. This love does not come natural to us. To extend love and kindness and grace in the midst of evil, you can't produce that in you. 
You can't produce that heart in you. You can't produce that love in you. It is not natural to you. You need a love that is supernatural. You need a love that you do not have. The only way that you and I will ever be able to love our enemies is if we first experience that we were loved as an enemy. That's the only way it's gonna happen. The goal, if you walked in here this morning, the goal is not that you leave here with this burden thinking that I've gotta be perfect and I've gotta love people who hate me and then God will love me. No, that's not it. Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, he says that unhealthy trees can't produce good fruit. The goal is not for you just to go and try all those things to become a good tree. No, the gospel is God makes the tree good and then the fruit will be good. Jesus came to renovate your heart from the inside out. And the only way that you and I will ever have a love for our enemies is if we first experience that his love as former enemies. The only way. Ronnie Stevens preaches at our churches multiple times. Often he says the Christian life isn't hard. The Christian life is impossible. And he's so right that you and I don't have this love in us ourselves, that we need a greater love. We need a greater heart. We need a love that we cannot produce. And it's the love that we have in the gospel. Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, while we were enemies, not once we turned back, not once we realized it, while we were presently enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You didn't move towards God before he saved you. You were an enemy and God saved you. And the only way that we'll ever extend and give love to our enemies is if we first experience being loved as an enemy. We have to start there. You have to start with the gospel. Jesus extended love as his enemies were actively killing him, persecuting him, nailing him to a cross. First Peter chapter two, for this you have been called. This is what you and I have been called to because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, not to earn your salvation, but because you already have salvation so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. At the cross, as man called down disaster on the savior of the world, he prayed God's blessings on us. Luke 23, it says, and Jesus said, he was praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus said there in the Greek, that verb he said is imperfect tense. It means a, a, a repeated action in the past that Jesus was continually saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As each nail went in, Father, forgive them. As the crown went on his head, Father, forgive them. As man is raining down judgment and hatred and evil on the God of the universe, he is praying for heaven's blessings to rain down on us, for the Father to forgive us, not repaying evil for evil. The beauty of the gospel is that if you think of the 12, Jesus called Simon a zealot and he called Matthew a tax collector. A zealot, someone who wanted to overthrow the government, and a tax collector, someone who betrayed his people to work for the government. Called together, brothers in Christ, the gospel is making 
turning enemies into friends. It's done it then, and they can do it again this morning. And if you don't know Christ, that's your response this morning. You might have walked in here an enemy of God, but you can leave a friend. You might have walked in here spiritually sick, but you can leave healthy through what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. You don't have to leave here an enemy. There's people here. There's people that will be at East Memphis. We'll stay here all afternoon if we have to. We say it all the time. We will give up our afternoon to talk to you about the gospel and the goodness of God who loves his enemies. I've been reading, I'll close with this. I've been reading um, some missionary biographies lately. And I would encourage you, if you have the chance, if you're a reader, um, read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. I'll share a little bit about it this morning as we close. But um, Corey Ten Boom was a um, young lady who grew up in Holland, um, Harlem, Holland, actually. And uh, she was involved in World War II. She worked at um, her dad's watch shop. Um, their house was above the watch shop. And um, World War II happens, Nazis invade, and uh, they were not Jewish but they were believers and they decided to start, Corey and her family, her sister Betsy, her father, decided to start hiding. They built a room inside of their home above their watch shop and were hiding Jews in their home from persecution, from murder, from the disaster of the Holocaust. And many people believe it was upwards of almost 800 people were saved because of the work that Corey and Betsy and their father did. And they would get caught and Corey and her father and Betsy would end up getting sent to a concentration camp, to two different camps, because of what they were doing. And long story short, she was 52, I believe, when she was sent there. Um, her sister, her dad would not make it out. He would die in a concentration camp. And a few weeks before Corey was released, uh, Betsy died. And that was the blow that hurt the most. And one of the ones that was um, almost impossible to move past. Um, but after Corey gets out, she was a believer and she starts traveling and preaching. Uh, she's preaching in the US, she's preaching in Europe, she's preaching all over the place and she finds herself towards the end of the book preaching in Munich, Germany. And after she's done preaching on forgiveness, this man comes down to her and she recognizes him and he was the soldier who stood guard at the showers in Ravensbrück concentration camp where she was for a long time who would mock the women, who would shame the women, who would make fun of the women. And this is what she writes. I want to read it to you. She says, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, listen to this, even as she sees this man and this anger stirs up, she says, I saw the sin in them. I saw the sin in my angry thoughts. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I gonna ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, the current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And here's how she ends, and I want you to see this on the screens. She says, and so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. And that's the gospel. The only way that you and I will ever extend love to our enemies is if we are first, we first experience love as an enemy. And we have that in the gospel. You and I are enemies of God. We were enemies of God in our sin. And praise be to God that he loved his enemies. God is turning enemies into friends. He's done it then. He can do it again in you. And the more you walk with him, the more you'll experience this love for enemies, the more you'll freely give love to your enemies. So if you're an unbeliever in the room, that's your response. That you can leave here a friend of God through the gospel. If you're a believer in the room, I don't wanna play the Holy Spirit. I trust him. I don't know who your enemy is. It could be your spouse. It could be a friend, former friend, someone you know. Don't wait. Extend love. Do whatever. I don't know what you are called to do in that situation. I don't know your story. But be obedient. If persecution and being nailed to a cross and crucifixion would not stop God, would not stop Jesus from praying for his enemy, what's stopping us? Is it our pride? Is it our ego? Run to the cross. Experience being loved as an enemy. Leave those things at the cross and run and love your brother or sister. Run and love those who are made in the image of God. If God had grace for me, I can have grace for them. God was kind to me in my sin, and I can be kind to them. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. God, we're grateful for your word. Father, we're grateful that as you give us the command, we don't have this love in us. We just don't. That love is not natural to us. We cannot produce that love in us. But God, we're grateful that as Romans says, by your spirit, you pour your love in us through the Holy Spirit. God, you give us the love we need. God, we're grateful that for all the ways we fail to love our enemies, you have fulfilled it on our behalf. God, help us to run to the cross and extend that same grace that you extended to us as your enemies to ours. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna give you just a minute, about 30 seconds, to just take a minute and reflect. Like I said, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I trust that in these next few moments that if you'll just reflect on the reality that you as a former enemy of God have been made a friend and praise God for that, the Holy Spirit will give you a response. If it's to praise, if it's to go and make a phone call, send a text message, whatever you need to do. But take a minute and reflect and then um, our worship team will lead us in a response.